sensational. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tennis Attic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Michael. Mike and Mike. Mike and Mike. We we can't quote that, though, right? No. (laughs) Someone's already got that, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, this is, uh, of course, my cousin, uh, Michael, and he's one of the co-hosts here. Uh, We decided... Not, I guess, not at the last second, but uh, shortly before uh, we kind of finalized our plans for this podcast to push some things back. We originally were going to do an episode on the golden age of tennis, the current one that we're in. However, uh, my brother couldn't uh, make it. He's, you know, has some family stuff going on, and ultimately, I want him to be part of the conversation. I don't want to take on something like that without him here, uh, you know, able to throw in his two cents. And so I decided we're going to push that back until Sunday. And so instead, we're going to talk a little bit about Davis Cup today. And then we're going to get into our main discussion, which is going to be uh, Roger and Rafa. Uh, Not a contentious debate, right? We're not arguing goat here today. We're not uh, breaking down, you know, matches head-to-head and, and parsing things out, uh, that's for another day. You know, those are all fine <laughs> discussions, and those are all things that we really should talk about at some point just to have a conversation. However, I was thinking after the Australian Open, with everything that happened, you know, with this magical run for both players, uh, getting to a final, something that – we weren't sure we'd ever see again. I thought that maybe it would be a good time for us to talk about how much we should appreciate these two players, appreciate them, their rivalry, right? How they've intertwined over the years, their narrative, their careers, how they've made each other better players, um, their friendship on and off the court, uh, the high degree of respect that's there. Uh, those are the things I want to talk about today, and that's why it's our main discussion. We're not breaking down anything, like I said. We're not going to toss out stats. There's not going to be no head-to-head records thrown out there. That stuff is unimportant. Today, we just want to talk about the celebration of these two fine players, two players that, that may go down, number one and number two, uh, as the greatest you know, male tennis players of all time, possibly. So... Uh, with that, uh, let's jump into Davis Cup first. So, Michael, uh, Davis Cup quarterfinals, you know, kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, although it's listed, you know, as first round um, Davis Cup with their shortened format and being that it's a team uh, play, uh, things are a little bit different, but quarterfinals obviously means you only have to get through a uh, a couple of rounds and you're in the final. Uh, of course, Davis Cup being spread over the entire year. Uh, but we did have a few interesting things uh, to happen in the first round that made it a little more interesting this year sometimes than most. Okay, yeah, we did. Um, well, for one thing, Argentina lost. 
You know, the defending champions, isn't they? They're two-time defending champions, right? They won the last two years, I believe. Or no, I no, no, actually. So. Or no, 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 not not the year before. I think um, – I'm trying to remember was, who won the year that before that. That was Britain, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's the year that Murray led them uh, with his that's masterful right. undefeated run for the whole season. That's right. Um, but yeah, Argentina, that's not a, that was expected though in my opinion being that they didn't have Del Potro uh, who was their, their big factor in winning last year. Yeah, it's true. Um, Fanini, the, the mercurial tennis player that he is, you never know what you're getting with Fanini. Some days he comes on the court and he can blitz almost anybody on the court. However... There's also days where he seems about as interested in playing tennis as watching paint dry. And <laughs> thankfully today was not one of those days. He actually looked like he wanted to play. He appears to have uh, found some kind of fire and he needed it because he came from two sets down to win this. Kind of a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I look at Fonini and you know how we always talk about People, when they come onto the court because of their attitude or who they're facing, they're already a set down. Uh, I always feel like with, with, with Fonini that it's basically he's coming onto the court knowing he's going to lose the first two sets uh, and then realizing, oh, okay, maybe I need to actually get into this match a little bit. Uh, and then, like you said, because he can get hot so easily, he's able to then pull it out in five. Yeah, I mean, look, he's the definition – in a lot of ways, of a hot and cold player. You know, when he's hot, when he's into a match, when he's in a rhythm, I, I've seen him make shots and go for shots that just about any other tennis player would never try. Maybe outside of Monfils. Well, um, let's be honest. He's got a very odd style. Yeah. Uh, we've all talked about it for a long time and the fact that he really doesn't use his legs when he plays, mm -mm. Um, which is really, really odd. Uh, but it works for him because he does have really good timing. Oh, he does. Uh, his timing is sublime. Um, he's a very – well, because he takes the ball so early, it, it's it got to be perfect. You know, his timing has got to be so on because uh, there's so little room for error. I've seen him hit balls, you know, whether it's a forehand or a backhand, just – it almost look, looks lazy when he hits it like it does it almost does. like it he's not even trying yeah. but he he just rips a winner out of nowhere right. right so anyway so good for Fanini. uh good to see Absolutely. that result and good for italy um yeah they haven't although they have good players you never see them really make a deep run or at least not for a while uh in davis cup and i've always wondered why because you know italians are known for being very you know you know, very strong-hearted as far as this team format. Um, so I've always wondered why they've never really excelled. Well, I think it's easily ans you know answered. It's because you know you need your biggest players, your best players in your country at Davis Cup. You need them to perform. You know, they have to go out there and do their job. I mean, unless you have a team which is just filled with stars, like you know, back like when Spain, uh, when Nadal was in, you know his prime in his, you know, mid-20s. And, you know, Ferrer was still, you know, in his 20s. And then a lot of the other guys, you know, Fernasco, all that. When they were in the, all in their prime, I mean, Spain was loaded. And mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. they were all playing, you just chalked up a win because 
you know, say, I don't know, maybe say one player wasn't playing that well. Oh, you know, their bench players had top know, 25 guys in it. Right. Um, I mean, these yeah. are, your, their bench had so much talent in and of itself. So, but with a lot of other teams, they don't have that. So, you, you yeah, need that definitely them. brings yeah. up, that definitely, not to interrupt, that definitely brings up a discussion for a later time about how some of the top players have always neglected Davis Cup mm-hmm. and why is that the case and what can Davis Cup do to change that because I feel like that's a big uh, a big loss for tennis because the Davis Cup format like in the 80s was a huge thing mm-hmm. and nowadays I mean it's almost an afterthought when it comes to tennis news yeah they'll have to find some some way of making it more important. I don't know. That is discussion for another day. So we'll put that to the back burner for now, but I do agree. That is the discussion for us to get into because it is an important one. It is a concerning uh, issue when it comes to, you know, just tennis in and of itself. You know, Davies Cup has been so important for ever. You know, it's been around for so long. It's become an integral part of the sport and I don't want to see it go the way of the Pro Bowl, like in the NFL, where the Pro Bowl used to be a source of pride. You know, players, you know, getting to go to the Pro Bowl was a huge deal, and it was competitive, and they fought hard, they played hard. So, but now, I mean, the Pro Bowl is just—it's an afterthought. It's if it gets a you know abolished, you know, uh, and taken away, and just. It'll just become a relic. You know, hey, there's this thing called the Pro Bowl once. Great. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So we yeah. don't want that to happen to Davis Cup. So they're going to have to find a way to rejuvenate, you know, this aspect of, you know, tennis for the players mm-hmm. and make it a real sense of pride. So, yeah, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, so let's get into some of the other scores here. We'll get over these a little quicker here. Uh, 4-1 for Belgium over Germany. So... That is uh, good for Belgium. Uh, I think Germany's a little. Um, that was actually really surprising to me. Um, yeah, because Germany was loaded. Steve, they had the Zverev brothers, yeah, and, yeah. and they had the Zverev brothers, mm-hmm. and they had Philip Kohlschreiber and Steve Darcis just annihilated them. Yeah. Um, credit to him; he's always been a stalwart for Belgium. Um, I, I'm happy to see him have success. We've seen him do some good things from time to time, um, but this is something he's really excelled in uh, as being a Davis Cup almost captain for Belgium yep. as he has always been their, their stalwart. Right. Surprising because he's always been, uh, you know, on tour. Up and down. He's up and down. Up he's down, never been, but Davis you know, huge uh, for him. yeah, absolutely. So, okay, then we have uh, – Let's see. USA 5-2-0 over Switzerland. Obviously, Federer wasn't playing, and now there was Stan. So uh, Switzerland's lineup isn't all that impressive, I think. They don't really they have – They did put a- up a fight. They put up a fight in those matches, but by no means did I think the U.S. was uh, in any worrying spot there. Um, although the U.S. replacing the Bryan brothers is going to be huge for them uh, for this season, being that they're, they're not going to continue with Davis Cup – uh, that's okay. They fill in with uh, Olympic medalist Steve Johnson and Jack Sock. I think they'll be okay. <laughs> uh, so, so let's let's hope that they can uh, become a really good team for them as well. Yeah. So we have Australia four one over the Czech Republic. 
Um, Australia, obviously, they're they're kind of loading up on talent. Uh, we know what they have. Um, uh, Kokonakis, uh, we have, they have Kyrgios, they have just a ton of players that are already, you know, kind of established and they have some guys star coming power. through. Star yeah, power. Star power. Yeah. Big guys, uh, young guys too. So mm-hmm. they should be uh, challengers for Davis Cup for you know years to come if everybody continues to grow and progress. Uh, and, and let's be honest, they're led by Rusty Hewitt, who could you know lead anyone. No one has more fire than he does. He could motivate anybody. So absolutely, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we have let's see France four one over Japan. So again, France is is kind of loaded too. They've got some aging stars. Um, in there, but they've also got some young talent coming up through as well. Uh, so I wasn't surprised, but to see this result, uh, this was something that I kind of thought but I wouldn't have been surprised if it was going to be five zero. Um, yeah, with Nishikori not playing, there was no shot in Japan having a chance right. at really making an effort here. Uh, France has always had a loaded lineup, they have for years, they've won several. Uh, Davis Cups in the last 10 years. Um, and like you said, they always have people that are similar to what you talked about earlier with, with Spain um, when they made their runs, that they always have a large group of top-tier players that they can call upon at any one time. Yeah. Uh, 4-1, that would be Serbia over Russia. Um, so I, I, I think that this, again, was not a surprising result. Russia's got some good uh, young players there, like Kuznetsov uh, being one of them, but mm-hmm. they just they didn't have enough to go up against Serbia and bring them down. So uh, Serbia goes into the next round. Obviously, a good result for them. For one, they're not going to complain about that. Uh, so. A little disconcerting for Serbia, though, that uh, the news out of the Serbian camp is that after his match, uh, his only match that he played, Novak Djokovic, is shutting it down until Indian Wells. Um, He's already said that he's having shoulder problems uh, following that match, and his camp has decided to shut it down for the next month until we get to Indian Wells. Right. Uh, That's something that we'll have to keep an eye on over the next few weeks. Uh, We'll probably end up talking about uh, when we get closer to Indian Wells. We'll do a uh, a spring hard court uh, kind of look ahead here as we get closer and um, for Grand Slam five and six right uh, for those of you at home basically <laughs> I mean yeah they really are in a lot of ways the fifth and sixth slams um, so we'll talk about that that's going to be something to keep an eye on because obviously shoulder issues that's not good uh, we know he had wrist issues last year um, and among other things there's a, a lot that's going on uh, with him right now so we've got to keep an eye on what's going on there and uh, see if anything develops. Uh, Spain, 3-2 um, over Croatia. So Spain, a lot of the young guys now, they have to take over. Uh, Nadal, Ferrer, uh, a lot of those guys, they're they're not really playing much Davis Cup anymore, and that's fine. You know, they were stalwarts for years. Uh, they carried uh, or helped really carried that team for a long time. Uh, I think Nadal won, I believe, three Davis Cups, three or four Davis Cups over the course of his career with, with Spain. So, And he was an integral part of 
all of them. Same with Ferrer, Verdasco, all that. So I think we're starting to see some of the younger guys, they have to come on and really uh, make an impact on Davis Cup. They've got to be the ones leading for the future. This this one was actually a little surprising for me. Croatia with an extremely young team uh, of a bunch of guys that most tennis fans would have never heard of mm-hmm. actually gave Spain a very tough draw here. Um, Spain having several, in, in fact, three top 35 players on their roster, and then Mark Lopez, who won the uh, you know a gold medal in doubles. So Spain having as loaded as a team as they do, albeit not with Nadal and Ferrer right now, um, definitely were very well tested by Croatia. Uh, I, I give credit to them. They, they definitely gave them a run, and um, actually Spain had to come back on day three and win both of their singles to clinch it. They were down 2-1 going into the third day. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, it wasn't easy. Uh, whenever you're starting to change, like a like a changing of the guard uh, in Davis Cup on these teams, it it sometimes can take a couple of years for the young guys to to really take on that mantle um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and start producing good results. That doesn't require five set you know <laughs> matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that's kind of where Spain's at now. You know, we don't know what's going on there in terms of. Uh, where this team is going to be led from within the group. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think it is, you know, there's going to be a couple guys on there from the older, you know, uh, generation. Uh, Lopez being one of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I still think that you're still still going to see some of the younger guys, you know, take over. And, you know, uh, Karina Busta, he's one of them. And obviously Mm -hmm. he has. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's a good one. And let's remember, Croatia did not have, uh, I do believe, Marin Cilic is on that team. Yeah. Uh, and they did not have him. So without their best player, they still gave powerhouse Spain a run for their money at least. Um, which is, again, one of those things that I say, I, I wish Davis Cup got a little more spotlight because, you know, something like that coming up, you would have thought Spain would have ran all over them. And these guys came out and had a good showing, um, which, which gives them a little bit of spotlight that they maybe wouldn't have had previously. Yes, I do agree. Uh, all right, let's get into the last one. And because it's going to be all about uh, Great Britain and Canada, specifically Canada, Great Britain wins 3-2. Uh, in weird fashion, in very weird fashion. Yeah, this was a big deal. This is a big development. It kind of spread like wildfire all across the internet. Uh, even in getting into sporting circles, uh, people that didn't really cover tennis uh, I know people at work were talking about it, and I know people that have no idea <laughs> the basic rules of tennis, and even they were were talking about this. So you just know that if that's happening, it's kind of an issue, uh, and that would be a match that I think is going to be looked at uh, pretty hard. And, and let's and let's to- and let's not downplay the fact that that was the deciding fifth rubber. Yeah, I mean it was two to two going into the last match, and everything was on the line right there. And then you have it end in a fashion like this, and it was it was just really a shock, like you said. Yeah. So we have Shapovalov, who uh, plays for Canada, 
young guy, 17 years old, and he's he's losing this match, right? I mean, it's not like he was leading or anything. He was he was really down in the match. Uh, things were not looking good for him. Yeah, he was down two sets in a break uh, yep. in the third. Yeah, down down uh, really big. It obviously unlikely he was going to win. So he tosses the ball up and hits it pretty much as hard as he could, just about as hard as he could. Uh, it, and it made a beeline when he hit this ball just out of anger. You know, the point was over. Uh, like we've seen many guys do, yeah. just you know, hit it out of anger into the crowd or something like that. But, but usually they hit a moon ball. In this, this is true. Yeah, in this sense, he just ripped it like you would, um, like if you would toss a tennis ball up and just rip it straight across the court. You know, yeah. And it hit the uh, chair umpire in the face and right in uh, the eye, right it, in the right in his left eye. It was brutal. And I mean, obviously, you could see the moment he did it, he was just absolutely. Aghast. I mean, he. Yeah, he was. He was shocked. He yeah. was in disbelief that it happened. And very you could so tell right. immediately how broken he was about it. Right. Um, but this is this is something to learn from 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 a seventeen year old. That hopefully then this will be something that we won't ever see out of him again. Right. And this well, this incident reminds you of the uh, Chilich Nelbandian match from a few years ago uh, at Queens Club in the final. Mm-hmm. Uh, that no, Bandian was winning and winning yes, pretty handily yes. at the time, uh, and he ended up uh, kicking out of frustration. Uh, there's um, lines lines judges that that at Queens they sit inside like this box little box area, and mm-hmm. um, out of frustration, Bandian kicked hard at you know this little wooden box and. It broke, and unfortunately, the shards uh, of the the wood went in and, and hit and ultimately injured this lines judge. And the rule is that whether it's in Davis Cup or regular play, if you injure a lines judge or you injure a ball boy, essentially, if you do something careless that results in an injury, yeah, to someone, yeah, you are immediately disqualified. You've lost yeah. the match. And that's exactly yeah. what happened to Nelbandian. Um, and, and the and this, same thing happening to Shapovalov here. Yes. So, uh, like you said, he's young. Um, but at the same time, he's been around tennis for a long time, right? He's not – he's young, but he knows the rules of tennis. Oh, you know, absolutely. He knows what he, he should and shouldn't do. And he knows what something like that uh, would lead to, which is a disqualification. Mm-hmm. Now again, like I said, yes, he is young. Uh, he doesn't appear, at least, to be a player who has issues uh, off the court. Uh, at least as far as I could tell. No, I, I haven't heard of anything. Either. But at the same time, you want to nip this in the bud. You know, mm-hmm. um, do I say through the? You know, if I I wouldn't say through the kitchen sink at him. But at the same time, he did get a fine. Mm-hmm. Seven thousand dollars, I believe. Do you feel? Do you feel that? A, a ban for a month or two would be beneficial here or do you think that that's uh, fine in terms of the punishment? Be- being that he's as young as he is, um, being what happened, uh, obviously we saw in the situation you know, of the video, he by no means meant it maliciously in any way towards the umpire or towards anyone. I think it was one of those things where we've seen players hit the balls before. Okay, he mistimed it. I mean, I guess that's possible. 
but uh, basically in doing so, that ball didn't go anywhere near where I believe he thought it was going to go. And at this point, I'd say a fine is enough. I, I mean, looking at the video, he he understood what happened. He knew the outcome as soon as it happened. And by no means did he seem put offish about it where he, you know, didn't care that this happened. He obviously knew how severe the repercussions were of this. Uh, I think it was just a simple fact that, you know, it was him against Edmund, deciding match, a big match for him that he's probably never been on that stage before uh, to clinch or win something this large. Um, albeit not a championship, but, you know, deciding rubber and Davis cup is, is a big victory for anyone. Um, but he basically, he showed the emotion. You could see how upset he was about the fact that he did it. He immediately went over to the umpire to see, uh, you know, obviously he was in shock in the situation as was the umpire, but I, I don't think that a ban is necessary. I mean, I guess you could do it, but I don't think at the age that he's at, and the situation, the way that it happened, that that a suspension's going to do any benefit. In fact, for some young player like this, it could actually kill a career by basically forcing him off the tour. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds here, uh, to be honest with you. On one hand, I agree. He's, he's young. He's 17. And he's obviously on a big stage. He's not playing well. And that's leading, or that lead led him to, in frustration, hit this ball. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, I say he's young, and this punishment is enough. He probably got a strong tongue lashing <laughs> from some high up officials, uh, I would assume. But at the same time, the only thing that leads me to question that a little is the fact that. To a certain extent, you could almost say that it's a good thing it hit the umpire because as hard as that ball was hit, let's say it misses the umpire and goes into the crowd, that probably hits somebody in the face or injures somebody severely. Good point. Very good point. Because, you know, when you're in the crowd, you know how it is. You're at a tennis match. We've we've been Mm -hmm. to the U.S. Open many times. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, When you're looking at your friend, you're talking to somebody, and what if I'm turning and talking to you and all of a sudden I get hit in the side of the head? or in the cheek, or mm-hmm. in the ear, uh, right. and who knows what kind of damage that, that could do. And I mean, hey, look, the umpire got hit in the eye, so... And I mean, his yeah. eye was horribly swollen yeah. um, immediately. Uh, within within minutes, it was horribly swollen to where he couldn't even open his eye. Right. So you're so right. Uh, you it, make a very, very, very good point. It's why I think I, I'm... On one hand, I mean, I guess ultimately maybe uh, suspension isn't necessary, but at the same time, I I feel almost like I, I wouldn't go so far as to maybe take him off for three months, but even just maybe a one month ban off the tour would be sufficient, in that it wouldn't be long enough to really hurt him that much, but it would also let him know and let everybody know that. Just you do this stuff. This is what's going to happen to you. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I, agree. I, I feel like sense. I feel like a fine and a a short ban would do enough to say you'll never do this again. 
And, and let's and let's be honest, it, it could still happen. Uh, I don't think that the discussion on this is completely over, albeit that he you know got the fine. I don't know if this is something that they're just sweeping under the rug after the fine or not. I haven't heard any other words on that. I don't know if you have. No, I haven't. I looked around. I haven't seen anything else. But this is something that I think needs to be looked at seriously because we've seen with other players where I feel like punishments weren't doled out and they weren't doled out seriously enough early on. And it and it's caused players to not toe the line on their behavior. Look, we've seen what Curios has done on tour. We've seen how only until things got really bad – uh, did the ATP start to come down on him hard? But after, Absolutely. but that was only yeah. after many, many incidents had happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, minor, some more minor than others, and you know. But the point is, is it took a long time for the ATP to finally say enough is enough, and it shouldn't take that long. You wanna, you wanna give somebody a decent punishment early on, so you can say, hey, look, you know, we're not gonna let you get away with this for a couple of years before we actually. You know, give you a punishment that's going to make you reconsider you know, doing what you're doing. And like I said, I'm not saying this guy's a bad guy. I'm not saying he's a bad kid. I'm not saying he's mm -hmm. you know a troublemaker. And you know, but I'm just saying, you know, when it comes to punishment of any kind, you want to make it severe enough early on to that it discourages future outbursts or you know similar behavior, which is being you know the real issue. For a lot of players that, that tend to just angrily, you know, smack a ball or smash their racket or whatever it is that, that they're doing, or yell at umpires and, and yell at players across the net, that that's stuff you have to stop right away. And so, yeah, I just I feel mean, like it's, yeah. it's it's few and far in between. But I mean, we have seen it, and we've even seen it from some very high-ranking people mm -hmm. uh, in tennis. And again, like you said, I completely agree what you're saying there that maybe they haven't been punished enough. Maybe there is a need to look into this more. I mean, until the last few years, we haven't really seen anything as far as suspensions. And that was only mostly doping situations. Other than that, really, when have people been suspended for any length of time? Other than betting, maybe on matches but that and doping other than that we've seen no suspensions in tennis for just about anything um you know curios who you had mentioned you know had been suspended for a while there basically because he wasn't competing on court which is so hard to believe uh but he wasn't yeah so i i completely agree with you i think that that's maybe something that should be looked at in the future or now uh something that the tennis federations need to start looking at and, and making it much harsher for people to do these kind of things uh, to obviously keep the sport as gentlemanlike or ladylike um, as it was intended to be many years ago when it was created. Hey guys, we at the Tennis Addict Podcast enjoy conversation, as you can tell. Thing is, we don't just like to sit around and talk to each other about tennis. We like to engage with the fans. That is you, right? So if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a tennis fan. I don't expect you would be otherwise. So here's the thing. We want to get emails or voicemails from you. 
What did you think about the Australian Open? What do you think about this player? What do you think about the prospects for the season? Do you love tennis? Do you like what we're doing? Do you have any opinion on how this podcast seems to be going? Do you have any suggestions? Those are the things we're looking for, okay? So here's the thing. If you want to send an email to us, you can do so at tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, Tennis Addict Podcast. One big word, at gmail.com. So here's the thing. iTunes. Everybody knows about iTunes, and chances are if you've listened to podcasts, you know that people rate podcasts on iTunes. Here's the thing. That's what we're looking for as well. If you would be so kind as to go to iTunes and give us a rating. It could be anything you want. It doesn't have to be five stars. Rate what you think we deserve, okay? And... If you could do that, we would be very thankful because it helps our profile within iTunes, helps us reach more people. And for us, it's all about reaching out to more people, more fans, more people like you who love tennis and like to engage in discussion about this wonderful sport that we all love. So thank you very much. We look forward to hearing from you. Right. Yeah. Look, we're not in the era of the 70s and the 80s when, you know, Connors and McEnroe would would go at it and... You know, all that back then, you know, that, I mean, obviously that was a much different, it was a different era and personalities, while the personality in the wars that they fought, uh, both in the press and on the court were great. uh, We entered a period of time where Agassi and Sampras had their issues, but they were much better behaved. And then we're now obviously in the era of Nadal and Federer. And, and they've obviously been the standards, I think, for how to conduct yourself as players. So Good, good lead into our next discussion. Good lead in. <laughs> and that is Federer and Nadal. So, yeah, uh, I want to talk a little bit today about how we should appreciate these two giants of the game. Now, whether you're a Federer fan or a Nadal fan, <laughs> uh, and, and you're a Federer fan, I'm a Nadal fan, uh, which is why this is a great discussion. Um. I think the fans probably like the players to a degree when they were young, years and years ago. There was, I think, a much more contentious aspect to the fandom and the, the probably the players themselves, even though I think they, they really enjoyed each other in general. When you're really in your prime and you're fighting for the biggest trophies and all of that, it's going to bleed over, you know, a little bit. And so I think that kind of is what happened with the fandom where if you go back, say, 10 years ago, you know, eight years ago, seven, eight, between seven and 10 years ago, uh, I think the fandom was kind of at each other's throat a little bit. Um, I, I, I remember a few times when uh, we were at each other's throats a little bit even about it. Uh, right. Some of our discussions were definitely much more uh, heated and directed uh, than they are now. Right. And I think that's partially because as players' careers go along and as they get older, and obviously Nadal and Federer are now over 30 years old, Federer is 35, um, there's more of an acceptance and, a, and an appreciation. Absolutely. Well. I think if you look at the rivalry between, say, Federer and Djokovic, uh, that has a much bigger edge <laughs> to, Absolutely. Absolutely. to those two players. I think they, they view each other, <clears throat> excuse me, a little differently 
Um, I think there's respect there, obviously, but it's always it's always been a contentious relationship and rivalry on the court. I could actually say, in my opinion, I think there's still a little disdain there. Oh, yeah. If we want to go that strong. I, I think that's probably correct. Um, and so with Nadal and Federer, however, I think what we've seen is that over the years, they've had a great friendship on and off the court. And I don't think any image, any moment in tennis that I can remember in my life has ever been more indelible, especially in regards to these two, as the post-2009 Australian Open where Nadal had won, they were on the podium, uh, Federer unleashed this this torrent of emotion. He was obviously in a a lot of pain, uh, lost the match, and was struggling to find the words. Now, it could have been held or handled completely differently, but what happened in that moment? Nadal put his arm around Federer. He said some kind, wonderful words into his ear, told him he was a great champion, and Federer smiled and wiped his tears away, went back to the podium, said a few words, and gave the podium to Dahl and, and said something along the lines of, you know, I've got to give him a chance to speak in the podium. He's such a great champion, da da da, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. the reason that's such a great moment is because it showed you the the friendship and the level of respect that the two held for each other. In that moment, Nadal putting his arm around him, it showed class that is why they're they're the standard bearers for that in the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, for me, uh, the perfect example um, on the opposite side of that, you're looking back, I'm looking now that in the Australian Open that we just finished seeing here, uh, how Roger, while he was on the podium, uh, you know, he had won the trophy, but he made it a point to say, you know, I'm so happy that I was able to share this moment with you yep. and point out that, you know, he, it was just odd hearing him say, and I mean, I completely see why he's saying it, but just the way that he, you know, looked at Nadal and said, you know, I hope you're here for another three, four, five years because tennis needs you. And I think, I think for the same way that we've talked about many times, uh, how Borg and McEnroe, were um, making themselves great together uh, when they were able to face each other. I think these two guys are the same in that the greatness of both of them come out when they play each other. Albeit a little bit swayed to Nadal when they have, you know, we still see the greatness regardless from both. Right. And 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 like you've said, the fact that they're able to uh, go on this big stage and still show this other side of them. And as you said with, with Roger in 09, the emotion that that truly comes out when you're playing your greatest rival and and possibly one of your greatest friends at the same time. It's, it's very difficult for a lot of people to probably understand that, but seeing it is, is a great appreciation for the sport and for the both of them. Right, because I think both players admire aspects of the other player's game. Um, I think, obviously, Nadal has always admired 
Roger's artistry, um, his just the shot making, the the beauty of his game, and I think Roger has has always admired Nadal's grit and determination and mental strength. Uh, legendary mental strength, really, maybe the most mentally strong tennis player of all time. Um, you know, it's not just in the matches. Uh, as Federer said before the Australian Open, he said, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my career to not have to really deal with the kind of severe injuries that other players have had to deal with. Um, and he talked about how he had admired Nadal so much because, you know, he had come back, he's come back so many times from mm-hmm, injuries that mm-hmm. have put him out for, you know, three months, six months, and he's come back and been strong or stronger and how difficult that is and so he held you know Nadal up as a the example that he had set for himself and coming back this year and obviously having won you know we we see that that has um obviously been something that he strived for and reached so it's seeing other qualities in other in the other player admiring them because maybe you're you know, mentally strong, but, you know, hey, you know, you're not as mentally strong maybe as the other guy. Uh, or maybe you've got a great game, but, man, that forehand of theirs is just phenomenal. It's seeing those qualities, admiring them, and acknowledging them, and not through contention, you know, not uh, through a haze of jealousy. I think both players see each other very clearly. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. Uh, and they just admire the other player for everything that they bring to the game and to their matches. And when you can reach that point in your career, when you can really do that, uh, it really says a lot. And these two players are phenomenal. You know, they, they may go down and obviously they've got you know, grand slams and tennis matches and against each other and tournaments to play from here on out. But they may go down as the, the two best tennis players of all time. Um, and I, I think we need to appreciate them. Is, is really what we're trying to get to is we need to appreciate their, these two players. We need to appreciate them individually, of course. But we also need to look upon the two of them as their careers have intertwined. The narratives have intertwined. Uh, they're like two trees that have grown. And as they've grown, they've wrapped around one another. And essentially, they've become one tree. Okay? And... To me, that's kind of why they're so special. You know, we have to remember Nadal, when he came on the tour, he was a, a prodigy, I guess, but he was a, an unknown quantity. You didn't know what we were going to get yet. And then eventually we saw Federer struggle for the first four or five years of his career, um, finally hit you know the kind of form he needed to hit, and then you know, became fetter that we, we've always known. Um, but they're such wonderful champions, and we don't know how, long, how much longer we're going to have them. You know, a year, two years, three years, four years, we don't know. Uh, at some point, though, they're going to be gone, and they're in the back end of their career. Nobody can deny that. They're over 30, you know? So we need to really appreciate the time we have left with them because... We don't have that many more year, more years, guys. We really don't. A few years, that's all we've got. And then they're going to be gone. And it's going to be the next wave of you know, tennis players, next prodigies, next possible all-time greats. 
you know, when these two gone, they're going to leave a massive hole in the sport. So what do you think? Um, I mean, you, you've, you've taken the words out of my mouth, but, um, <laughs> but basically, uh, when we look at Nadal and Federer as, uh, as people, I, I stretch a little bit to say this, but if you're thinking tennis terms about people that transcended the sport as far as, you know, what they did on the court and off the court, you would have to look at uh, Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King, mm -hmm. even if we're jumping off of the men's side here, uh, as people that were able to transcend the sport. I don't necessarily want to say that Federer and Nadal have done that yet, but at least for this generation, I feel as though these two are 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 or should be regarded in that kind of level. Um, we've always talked about, you know, like you said about them being at the tail end of their career and maybe only having a few years. I know for you and I both, as as well as a lot of people around the world, that no matter how long we still have left with them or being able to see them play, it's never going to be long enough. Um, I, you know, if I could watch Federer play until he was 50, obviously this is way, way beyond possibility. But seeing that, I would accept it just because of being able to respect. And, and, and even for Nadal, who, uh, as you had talked about earlier, uh, how fans used to be very contentious, I was extremely contentious towards Nadal. Um, we want to say back that 10 year period, we'll say to 07. Um, was very, very, very contentious towards him. Um, even as I mentioned earlier with that disdain factor, I, I might have shared a little bit of disdain towards him at the time. Um, but as the years have gone on, I have gone, you know, gone on to have the appreciation that um, to look at Nadal on the same level that I do, Roger, mm. albeit Roger, my favorite player. Um, that Nadal has so many qualities and, and things about him that have, you know, transcended their rivalry. Uh, as you had said, with the, the repeated comebacks that he's had uh, from injuries that, for the most part, a lot of guys would have never came back successfully. Not saying they wouldn't have made it back, but successfully to the point of winning slams as he has. Um, after many, many of those uh, injury returns. Uh, looking at that, I want to say that I feel like at the same time in this last offseason that Roger had to draw a lot of inspiration from Nadal. Uh, when this offseason happened, the first time he's been prolonged and had an injury in his career that was a problem for him because he's never really suffered any major problems. Albeit he had the nagging back injuries, it was still nothing that was uh, debilitating to the point where he couldn't play and had to legitimately take so much time off, more than you know a tournament or two, but half a season. Um, I say that he had to have drawn the inspiration from Nadal, and I'm sure they, they had much conversations at the same time uh, during that time that they were both off, yeah, uh, we talked about in the prior podcast how you know Nadal asked Roger to be at his opening in the off season for his uh, tennis academy that he started, and Roger immediately was like, "Absolutely, why would I not want to be part of something like this?" 
uh, and help help again, as we've said, greatest rival yet, possibly greatest friend at the same time. Uh, that's why I say you, you've got to look at these two as, as near transcending the sport at this point, being that they're in the back half of their careers and doing what they have done for the sport, as you said, basically carrying the sport. I mean, we have some guys now that, that are showing, you know, they're starting to break through the light a little bit of these two. But at this point, this last tournament in Australia showed us that they're, they're still there, um, which was so joyful. I was so joyful to see that happen because I think both of us and, and many people around the world believe that we were not going to see that anymore. And I'm not meaning just those two playing each other. I'm seeing those two making runs in, in Grand Slams and, you know, still still showing that greatness that we always know that they've had but maybe didn't still have and i think that we're now at the point in seeing that we got to appreciate as as our discussion is here that they are still there and hopefully there for several more years and realizing that that this is it we're we're near that back end and we were just treated to something that was uh not on the table for the most part in most people's minds, but we were able to sit back and enjoy. And I feel like that's what our discussion is about here, that that's what we need to do. Just sit back and enjoy what we're seeing out of both of them uh, for the next few years or however long it is that we still have them in the sport. Yeah. Um, I've always uh, looked at Nadal and Federer as near equals. And I, and I don't, like I said, I'm not, I'm not getting into a, a GOAT discussion, uh, partially because, um, you know, Federer has got more than Nadal. But I think one thing that I've always felt is that unlike, say, Sampras versus Agassi, where you clearly understood that Sampras was the dominant player by a pretty large margin in that, uh, that rivalry. Uh, most especially when it came to the Grand Slams and, and, and very much so when it came to the finals. Um, with Nadal and Federer, it's it's a little different, you know, obviously uh, with the head-to-head record and all that, but it's not even really so much about that. I think what, what makes Nadal much more on equal terms with Roger and again, I'm fine if Roger's the you know goat greatest of all time. That doesn't really bother me. Um, but while that's 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 probably very much true, uh, I don't look at Nadal and think that Nadal is the Agassi to Federer's Sampras. You understand? Because it's I, not the same yeah, I, thing. Yeah, I agree. It, they are more like like one A one B. Really? Yeah, um, yeah. I I don't look at them as a one-two. Uh, as I said, I've I've felt over the years that things are much on a much more level playing field in my mind than they used to be, uh, as far as the two players. But I completely agree with you. Not a not a one-two, but an A and B at that point, or an A one A B one, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, know? right. And and see, the thing is, that's what kind of makes this such a celebration, right? I mean. Regardless of who won the Australian Open this year, and ultimately, regardless of what the final you know slam count is, I view these two as a combined entity. 
uh, their rivalry, their friendship, the narrative that's been spun over the years between these two great players um, is such that I see them exiting the sport together. Uh, this is just a this is just a, a possibility, but I, I kind of wonder if there's a possibility that maybe when a doll hangs it up, it's going to be, be uh, the same time that Roger does. You know, maybe in two or three years from now, uh, you know, they both might say together, probably have discussions where they're both like, I'm ready to go. And they both exit, you know, the sport together uh, as one. And that would be a poetic way. In so many, in so many ways, it would be so poetic for these two to leave the sport together uh, and almost as the best of friends, ready to kick back and chat and not have to worry about playing tennis with each other unless they want to go out on the court and play for fun. You know, I'm sure they will. I'm sure that that will happen. So, uh, as, as much as these two love tennis. Right. So ultimately, the final word, uh, my final word for this is going to be this. Uh, enjoy them while they last. We don't know how much longer we have. Celebrate them for the greatness in the past and for the hopeful greatness that's to come. And never forget that transcendent tennis players are few and far between. Uh, I'm not talking about Murray and Djokovic right now because even though they're great and they're transcendent in their own way and we'll get to them in another time, I'm specifically talking about Nadal and Federer. And just remember, a tennis career, like any athlete's career, is finite. Love them. Appreciate the other player. Appreciate, if you're a Federer fan, appreciate Nadal for what he's brought out of Federer. If you're a Nadal fan, appreciate Federer's greatness and what he's done for Nadal. They've both raised each other's levels. They've both made each other a better player. Maybe Federer would have many more slams than Nadal, but I don't think he would be as good a player if Nadal didn't exist, and vice versa. So uh, I appreciate and love both players for who they are and what they've brought to tennis, and let's continue to love and enjoy them for what time they have left. So. All right, guys, that uh, looks like that is the end of our podcast. Um, next uh, next week, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking about the golden age that we are currently in, in tennis. We're going to talk about uh, the last 10, 11 years uh, that we've witnessed some of the great uh, tennis, greatest tennis that we've ever seen. Uh, this Big Four era, uh, which initially started out as the Big Two era. So we will be diving back into Nadal and Federer a little bit. But of course, we're also going to have to include uh, Djokovic and Murray. And we'll talk about all of that. What does it mean? Is this the greatest golden age of tennis that uh, has ever existed? Uh, we'll get into that and uh, so much more. So until then, uh, we will talk to you next time. Have a good week.